0: Dear esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm your host, Rob Kant. As you know, I'm the author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, and Banneker Bones and the Alligator People, two of the finest books ever written. Uh, and I recently tweeted a super secret hint that the first four words in the title of my next book are Banneker Bones and Thee. So I haven't revealed what, noun, what nouns may follow the and the. But that is the title of my next book is Banneker Bones and the so there will be an untitled third adventure. Uh, if you're curious, uh, both of these books are available currently as paper, uh and ebooks. books uh, Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees is available as an audiobook, And you're listening to this. So I assume you like to listen to things. The ebook for Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees is free to download whenever you're watching or listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. So check out Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees under the super secret pen name Robert Kent. I write horror novels such as the uh, young adult novel, All Together Now, a Zombie Story, and All Right Now, a Short Zombie Story. Uh, good stuff. If you like The Walking Dead, you like your zombies slow and terrifying, and your people desperate and despairing, by golly. <laughs> This young adult novel is for you, and that's that's kind of how I see high school, or at least how I remember it now, is desperate and despairing. I feel that's a good uh, description. Uh, and then I've also got this monster, The Book of David. Uh, this is a no holds bar, all-out adult horror novel. It is a serial novel. It's five volumes long. The first chapter, The Book of David, chapter one, uh, is available to download as an e-book. Whenever you're watching or listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold, uh, if you like Stephen King, if you... You like the show about middle grade fiction, but you just wish that there was more profanity and violence and nastiness. Well, by golly, check out the book of David. You won't be disappointed. Uh, Coming up on the show, we have got some wonderful guests. We're going to have editor Molly Kusick here later this week. Uh, And next week, we'll be talking with author Alan Woodrow, who is the author of The Curse of the Penguin. This book is available today. It just came out. I have absolutely howled with laughter reading Alan's book. So, check out The Curse of the rare Penguin when you come back next week and we discuss it. You'll already be on the note because you'll have read copy. As always, for updates on the show and everything else, check us out at middlegradeninja.com. Uh, and that's it. My guest today is Jennifer Mattson. Jennifer, it is wonderful to see you. How are you today?
1: I'm doing great and happy to be here.
0: Good. Well, why don't we uh, get started? If you would, I'm terrible about summarizing other people's books and other people's biographies. Uh, so probably the best way to get started is if you would just tell esteemed audience about your background and how you, uh, how you come to publishing.
1: Okay, esteemed audience. Um, so I, uh, I graduated um, with a, a very highly unusual degree for somebody who went on to work in publishing and that is an English degree. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I wanted to, to kind of get my feet wet in publishing in some way and had a little bit of a hard time finding just the exact right niche. So ended up taking the first available sort of job that was the closest possible. And that was at Houghton Mifflin Company, working in the college math textbook division. So, you know, it was pretty far afield from what I kind of envisioned publishing to be. Um, I certainly was thinking about it more along the uh, glamorous uh, fiction acquisition lines. Um, and instead, I was sort of counting geometric diagrams in very long mathematical manuscripts. Um so that job lasted about a year, but the cool—the only reason I bring it up really is that um, Houghton Mifflin, of course, as everyone listening to this podcast probably will know, is has just an extraordinary backlist of children's books. Um, you know, Curious George, uh, The Giver won the Newbery the year that I was working there, and and I think just being in that atmosphere made me kind of interested in children's literature and prompted me to really remember how deeply you connect with the books you read as a kid. Um, And so I started becoming just a little bit more interested in going into children's book publishing specifically and had a few informational interviews with the editors at Houghton Mifflin Children's. Um, So what they told me is that if I was interested in in doing that, I ought to work in a bookstore, um, particularly children's bookstore. So I ended up, working in several different children's bookstores over the span of maybe two years. Um, And that was really my segue into working in children's books. Um, And I would recommend that to anyone who's in their early 20s wanting to get into publishing. So I I went from the bookstore experience, um, which was in Boston, because that's where Houghton Mifflin is based. um, And Mm -hmm. then I Uh, go ahead. Yeah.
0: What uh, what was it specifically about working at a children's bookstore that helped prepare you for a career in uh, children's uh, literature that that uh, working in math books just wouldn't do?
1: <laughs> well, I think that the the direct um, experience of seeing kids and gatekeepers um, be drawn to particular titles in a store is really important. It's also important to to see the titles that aren't being picked up off the shelves and wind up just getting beaten up and thrown out or returned to the publisher um, at the end of the day. So it's just a, it's kind of an irreplaceable experience um, where you really are seeing point of purchase, how the books live in the point of purchase world and a way you don't when you're kind of in the siloed in your editorial office. So so I went from bookstores to working at uh, Penguin. Um, My first job was in marketing and I moved from marketing into editorial um, and worked in editorial at Dutton Children's Books, which is an imprint of Penguin for about five years. Um, And then personal circumstances took me to Chicago from New York City. So at that point I kind of had to reevaluate. There aren't a lot of major publishing houses, although there are are a few very good ones um, in Chicago but the opportunities aren't quite as robust. So um, at that point, I switched to being a book reviewer for children's books at Booklist, did that for about five years. Um, And then my husband, he's an academic, so he went on sabbatical, Um, he's a mathematician. So maybe there's like a weird connection there between my first job in publishing to my personal life. Were you together at the time you were working on math books? Uh, No, actually, no. (laughs) So it was some kind of very deeply embedded connection. Um so the the book reviewing job um was at American Library Association I worked at Booklist magazine um but when he went on sabbatical we were in California for a year and that's where Andrea Brown agency is based so I realized that that could be um kind of an interesting way to get back to some of my publishing roots um I had kind of been wanting to have more hands-on experience with the manuscripts and with authors Um, I missed that part of publishing when I was a book reviewer, although there were many things I did like about being a book reviewer, Um, but it was um, great to connect up with Andrea Brown Agency, and she's just such a supportive boss and willing to let her her agents work remotely. Um, So I was able to remain in Chicago once we moved back from California after the sabbatical. So that was about 10 years ago, and I've been at the agency ever since.
0: Man, There's a lot to unpack there. So many uh, questions for you about your background. Uh, Starting with um, uh, regular uh, esteemed audience members know it's a hobby horse of mine to get publishing out of New York City as much as possible. Ah. The the rent is just too high. Come on out here to Indiana. By golly, you can get a whole house for what you're you're paying for a studio apartment in Manhattan. And uh, I can get a job at your publishing company. It'll be great. (laughs) (laughs) I agree with you. Is it... um, what what are the challenges in being in Chicago, not centrally located? Although there are, there is some publishing going on there, I know the Selmore Book Show Summit takes place right there in Chicago every year now, uh, as well mm-hmm. as plenty of other conferences and events. Yep. Is it? I mean, are you heading to to New York City on a regular basis to keep contacts fresh, or what are you doing to compensate for the fact that you are a bit remote, or do you need to do anything? Is this something that everybody could do, uh, working remote?
1: Uh. Right. Well. I mean, first, I completely agree with you that I think that um, the concentration of publishing in New York gives a skewed perspective on um, subject matter that is of interest to some kind of a narrow subset. Sometimes I feel like some, sometimes those Midwestern themes get a little glossed over um, just by way of one example. Um and I also think it's a little bit of a hothouse. So I, I enjoy not being kind of in the maelstrom of New York publishing. I'm a little more of an introvert um, personality wise. So I feel like that might be kind of overwhelming for me to be in that all the time. Um, so so I really like being in Chicago. I do travel to New York. I, I feel like I can be very intentional intentional about my visits with editors. And we really get a lot done when I meet up with them. You know, I set up a three-day, four-day schedule that goes from 7.45 breakfast to, you know, 8 p.m. drinks with an editor, um, you know, all day back-to-back meetings. And so, you know, I feel like I do make up for not being in New York um, with those really intense kinds of encounters. Um, And then, as you say, Chicago is such a magnet for the big conferences. Uh, I think ALA might be in Chicago two years running in the next few years. um, And a lot of other conferences come here. So editors often come to me. And so I have a chance to meet up with them, you know, in my own backyard, which is nice as well.
0: Of course, I assume you can keep uh, tabs with people by phone, by email, by video conferencing, like we're doing now. Uh, Yeah, sure.
1: I don't, I really don't think that being outside of New York is any kind of drawback for an agent. Um, I've heard agents who live in new york even say that they think that they're going to see people all the time but it's sort of like you don't go to the restaurant that's in your own backyard <laughs> you just kind of uh, figure you're going to just cross paths with them eventually and if you don't actually make a plan it never really happens
0: and of course if there was any question you've got the the full support of andrea brown behind you uh, which has regular members of esteemed audience know is a A wonderful and huge uh, literary agency (laughs) that uh, does people right and has what four Jennifer's?
1: Yes yes I am the third Jennifer to join the agency but you're right we do have four Um, but we each have kind of a different handle so I'm JMat which is also my email handle and then we have Jay Soul, Jennifer March soloy who I believe was on your podcast not that yes, long ago. Too, Jennifer's a, down now. Yeah, we got, got two more to go. More to go. Um, and then there's Jen L., which is Jennifer Loughran. And if you haven't listened to her podcasts, you definitely ought to. Um, and then there's Jennifer Rofay, whose um, big exciting news this last year was that her client, Meg Medina, won the Newbery Award, which is super cool for both Jennifer and the rest of the agency.
0: You know, that was one of my favorite books of last year. I never say my favorite because I love every author. I love every <laughs> book that I read uh, at the blog, but I was so excited for, for Meg Medina because uh, I really thought that um, uh, Mercy Suarez was just above and beyond. And obviously, I'm not the only one. Lots of, lots <laughs> of
1: Well, thank you for that. It's a wonderful book.
0: In fact, I wanted to ask you just about uh, reading in general before we get to the the nitty gritty of of all the all the different things, but aspects of publishing we're talking about. But I want to talk just about reading uh, and your love of reading. When you've been an editor, I think you said for about five years with Mm -hmm. that before you then went on and became a book reviewer. Does that make you a harder reviewer having been part of the process or did you find that you were a little bit more forgiving because you know how hard authors uh, had worked for you?
1: Well, that's a really interesting question. I'm, I've never really thought about that before. I think that um, I think that it might have made me a little bit uh, more empathetic. Um, I, I do think that there can be a a type of reviewing where the reviewer just gets a lot of pleasure at delivering the most emphatic hatchet job possible because it's really fun to write hatchet jobs. Um, But actually, I think I was a little bit protected from having to even make those kinds of analyses because um, Booklist was a recommended-only journal. So it's really meant as a tool for libraries to select, as a selection tool. Um, So if a book wasn't deemed at or above a certain level of quality, it just didn't get reviewed at all. So I I was protected from having to deliver the hatchet job. Um, But I think if I had been working at a review journal that allowed for a little more criticism um, I think I probably would have erred on the side of being more empathetic, yes.
0: That's one of the uh, policies I had to make back when I was reviewing books more regularly at the blog, uh, is I had the... Um seemingly uh, impossible policy. If I only talked about the good qualities of the books. I only talked about the things I liked. I never mentioned the negative qualities, which maybe doesn't make for the most fair and balanced review you're ever going to see. But it forced me to be a lot kinder to authors than I would have been otherwise, because I I tend to be over hard on books, uh, because I feel like I'm working really hard when I see some other author uh, that may or may not be their fault appears to have fallen down on the job. That just makes me angrier. Like, well, I, I think I that. think
1: that authors really rely on the author community for support, and I think it's a re- totally reasonable policy decision to emphasize the positive in that situation, for sure.
0: And if I hadn't made that decision, this would be a very lonely podcast.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you might be right.
0: Let's uh, let's talk a, you know, let's just start with right now what uh, esteemed audience wants to know. What kind of projects are you looking to represent and what's the best way to get in touch with you?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, Well, starting with the best way to get in touch with me so I don't forget that part um, we, uh, I, accept, I am accepting queries um, and our, uh, our query policy is posted on our website, but it's pretty easy to explain. Um, if you're querying me about a picture book, then you can send me a pitch letter and the text of the picture book pasted into the body of the email. And do put query in the subject line that way you'll get my auto response and you'll know that it didn't get lost in the ether Um, and then for longer works um, we request that you cut and paste 10 pages and if i like the looks of that i will request that you send me more or even send the full Um, i think that basically covers the policy but if uh, if you want to just read up on it in more detail and there are some other. parameters if you're an illustrator uh, that you'll want to follow, then you can uh, just visit our website and check it out there.
0: And with those query letters, I never want to do the how to write a query letter because uh, hopefully by the time people are astute enough to be listening or watching this, they, they know how to write a query letter. If you don't, go back to John Six episode. There's a whole section on it. Uh, you can check that out. But- when you're looking at a query letter, that initial pitch, what is it that gets your attention? Do you prefer to have people say nice things about you and why you're the best agent that could possibly be for them? Do you want them to get straight to the, the pitch? What are you looking for? What what rules people out quickly for you?
1: <laughs> I think that the biggest thing that kind of catches my eye is just a general level of professionalism and obvious understanding of the industry. I think that there are, there is a vast quantity of queryers out there who, you know, don't really follow the kidlet industry or understand very much about it at all. And it's, it's very easy to recognize those really just even from the first paragraph or first sentence of a query letter. Um, so, you know, when I, when I see that somebody maybe heard me on a podcast or heard one of my colleagues on a podcast or, read something that I've, you know, talked about on a blog. Um, I think I'm not necessarily reacting to that because it makes me feel flattered, although I guess it probably does. But I think it just makes me see that the querier is kind of plugged into the kid community and is working hard to educate themselves. And I think it's those clients that I've seen from experience, you know, go on to to have success in their careers, um, because they're sort of being active participants and Career—it's essentially career development. Um, so, so I would say that's like the basic thing, you know, professionalism, no typos, just like the basic basics. Um, and then on top of that, uh, I think that if you're knowledgeable about how to pitch your work and can do so concisely, um, I think that often uh, makes things rise to the top.
0: So, when we say a, a pitch, what's a reasonable pitch there in the query? One paragraph, two paragraphs? If I, I go five it, paragraphs, is that? Yeah,
1: too- yeah, it's two. Five would definitely be too long. Um, my colleague Jennifer Rofe likes to say if your pitch letter is longer than the manuscript, <laughs> then that's a problem. <laughs> 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 and I have seen some like that. Um, I think a short paragraph for plot is, is great. Um, you know, in terms of the whole query letter, I think that um, three short paragraphs is a good length, maybe four. Beyond that, it starts to feel a little leggy.
0: Do you read the entire paragraph or do you kind of, I'm sorry, the entire query letter, or do you kind of glance at it and go straight to the sample to see what we're dealing with?
1: Yeah, it depends. I know that there are some agents who say that they never read query letters. Um, I'm definitely not one of those agents. I think the query letter can tell you a lot about the writer, um, especially in terms of the writer's professionalism. Um, so I, I, will, I will read the query letter and I think I probably read it all, yeah. And I particularly like to see—I um, really like to see comp titles in a query letter when it makes sense. Like it doesn't always make sense, and I, I wouldn't reach for a comp title um, if it's—if you're really having to reach. But I do think that if you can um, come up with a comp title that is a is a good encapsulation of the spirit of the book you're trying to write, uh, I think it both helps me to sort of place your project in the larger marketplace landscape. Um, but it also shows me that you're reading and your genre, which is is important.
0: And I assume with comps, you would prefer something from the last couple of years, not this is the new little house on the prairie or step back, Harry Potter, here comes me.
1: Yeah, both of those are, are definite no-nos. <laughs> I, yeah, I like to see things that are not too old um, and also not overselling it. Um, you have to be a little careful not to compare things to the last Newbery winner um, because I think that that can sometimes the expectation is a little set, a little too high at that point. Um, but I like to see things that are recent and, you know, widely read enough that I've heard of them. Like I shouldn't have to go look it up on, on the internet to figure out what you're talking about.
0: That makes sense. i uh, talking about uh, professionalism. Um, obviously, everybody who's watching and listening to this is going to the first line of their query is, I loved you on the Middle Grade Ninja podcast. How amazing. Uh, <laughs> but if they also query another agent who hasn't yet uh, appeared on the, uh, on, on the podcast, you're welcome. Please get in touch with me. I'd love to talk with you. Um, but if they were to say something like, I'm a member of the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators, mm-hmm. what other ways can they demonstrate professionalism uh, without stating where they found you specifically? Is there something else that might catch your eye?
1: Well, I think that the, the cleanness and quality of the writing is its own mark of professionalism. Um, but I, I also really like it when people talk about their critique group, if they have several critique groups or one really long standing critique group. I think having a um, sort of first line of defense support network in your writing is really important um, and valuable. And uh, that's something that I often I don't know that I necessarily look for it, but when I see it, it kind of, you know, puts another like check mark in the box for me.
0: And then if I say that this is my uh, 10th novel, because the other nine have all been rejected terribly, (laughs) does that speak to my professionalism or is that setting me up for failure?
1: That's a setup for failure. (laughs) No need.
0: (laughs) And then let's talk about those 10 pages I ask. Uh, Just about everybody, if you go back and listen to the shows, I'm I'm always asking this question because I get different answers every time, and it's a mystery I desperately want the solution to. I always say if those those first 10 pages, if I could have told you the whole novel uh, in 10 pages, I wouldn't have written the whole novel. I'd have written 10 pages. In fact, now Mm -hmm. I'm thinking for something you said that if I could get away with it, I'd send you a query letter, and my pitch would just be – sentence one of the novel, followed by the entire novel. This is a query letter now that's 300 pages long, but by the time you get to the end of it, well, you'll, you'll know whether or not you like the book. Um, so what, uh, what in those first 10 pages are you looking for? What gives you some indication that this is something you want to see more of, or that, no, this is nothing I want to work with?
1: Sure. Uh, I think that I can understand your frustration because I'm, I'm sure that it is, uh, very annoying to have people tell you that you should, you know, have everything that's going to happen in your book already present in the first 10 pages. I mean, that's that's a very tall order. Um, but I think what it it really boils down to is making sure that the, the, there's a microcosm of the tension that's going to come into play over the course of the novel within those first 10 pages. And, you know, maybe you're not actually giving away the plot in microcosm but that the level of tension is there. I always think about, I heard Donald Moss, who's an adult agent who wrote, writing the breakout novel, which is an excellent book. Um, Kind of, it's a book that where he analyzes the kind of breakout literary, adult literary fiction hits of like maybe the mid nineties, early two thousands and kind of tries to figure out what they all had in common that allowed them to break out and become bestsellers. and and one of the things he said in his talk was that he he thinks that every page has to have some form of tension. And he instructed writers to throw their manuscript up in the air and let it all fall down to the ground. And if you grab any page and read it, there should be something in that page that makes you want to turn to the next page. And so I think that when I'm when I'm looking at the first, I don't remember what you said, but first ten pages. I, I feel like I'm, I'm looking for that sense that I want to keep turning the pages. Um, so, and that really does, I mean, I think tension is the most um, effective way to define to, to that. Um, I also look for really confident choices. I think that, um, you know, I, I want to see that an author has an ability to kind of, not necessarily like, this is definitely. I definitely don't want to see like a showboating writers writing style, um, but I like to see you know the confidence to maybe drop a dialogue tag or the confidence to um, you know have a have a incomplete sentence once in a while if it makes sense for the voice of the character. Um, often I find that the writing style ends up being very straight and bland, um, so I'm looking for something a little more distinctive than that in those first pages.
0: And are you a big fan of uh, grab you by the shirt collar hooks right there in, in uh, paragraph one, paragraph two, or is that gimmicky and you prefer that you just keep the tension building by the end of the 10 pages? Yeah,
1: I'm not a fan of that. I, I find that the author's hand is usually too visible in those devices. Um, and I can kind of read between the lines why the author is you know, front loading the manuscript that way. Um, so so I, it does usually turn me off to have something like that. Um, I think for some genres, it probably works well. Um, maybe horror is one and, and maybe very commercial middle grade adventure fiction is another where you can have like a really, I think Percy Jackson opens with that kind of, I don't know if it's the first page, but certainly the first few, first scene is a pretty intense kind of action sort of scene. Um, so I think it can be okay for some genres, but generally speaking, when I see it in a query, I don't tend to like it.
0: All right. Good to know. Good tip for Uh, for <laughs> uh So what kind of projects are, uh, are you presently looking for?
1: So my list um, right now is a little bit skewed toward picture books. Um, both authors and illustrators, fiction and nonfiction. And because of that, I think right now, I'm really looking to grow my list in a fiction direction. So um, so even though I love working on picture books and I adore my picture book clients, I think at, at this particular time, what I'm most excited about is um, getting some more fiction writers um, into my stable. And that's not to say that I will turn away like this, a slam dunk of a picture book in the least. I'm, I think that they're always gonna be a great love of mine and I will probably always be prone to falling in love with them. Um, but I am putting a thumb on the scale of fiction right now. And in terms of what types of fiction I'm particularly looking for, sometimes it's easier for me to define what I'm not, <laughs> that I'm not looking for. I, I don't tend to respond well to really heavily genre um, fiction. And by genre, which is a little bit of an industry buzzword, and probably your listeners are enough in the know, they know what that means. But just to be sure, um, genre is sort of a, a very narrow n- niche in the marketplace that tends to be um, all, one, all one type of thing and highly commercial. Um, and some examples of what I would describe as genre would be horror or romance um, or historical. Those would each be... A kind of genre and and I think that I I don't I, I tend to respond more to things when they cross genre but if it's solidly one genre I think especially in the horror and romance side of things I'm a little um, I tend to not to respond quite as strongly um, a departure from that though I would say is fantasy I really I fantasy was my great love as a kid um, that's what I turned to I devoured The works of Ruth Chu, who was this probably writer in the 50s and maybe 60s. I'm not quite that old, but I liked reading old stuff. Um, And she wrote these great novels set in Brooklyn near Prospect Park, where kids would just encounter kind of witches and magical objects in the course of their everyday lives and then would have to sort through how to solve all of the problems that cascade from their making use of these magical objects. Um, And, and I just loved those books. So that started my kind of um, deep dive into fantasy. And and I would say I read less fantasy now that I'm an adult, but I still have a a very, very soft, soft spot for it. Um, And I think um, in the fantasy genre, I tend to be drawn to very grounded fantasy. I really like sort of almost anthropological explorations of worlds. Um, Ursula K. Le Guin was a great love of mine. I think that her Earthsea books are spectacular. Um, Another example, a more contemporary example of a a fantasy novel that I think has that sort of anthropological approach would be Maggie Stiefvater's The Scorpio Races um, set on an island that has a a very distinct, um, sort of social setup. Um, yeah, those are some of my favorites. And so if I could, if I could, uh, get some fantasy submissions along those lines, I would be thrilled. Um, and that would go for both middle grade and young adults. And then, you know, across the board, I'm looking for, uh, manuscripts that just reflect the diversity, diversity of our world and, and all the, the different meanings of that word.
0: Makes sense to me, and I wanted to ask you, because I've been pouring over your uh, uh, submission requirements and your manuscript wish list and all that Mm -hmm. that stuff. Um, I wanted to ask you, you had said that you're looking specifically uh, for an author's point of view that is distinctive and well-developed, which sounds like voice to me, Uh, and I'm always curious, because this this ever ephemeral idea of an author's voice. How would you define that? How do you know when you've got an author who is Distinctive and well developed in their their point of view.
1: Yeah, I feel like that's just it's it's often such a um in, intuitive response that it's it's hard to specify exactly what that means. Um, and I think it it probably goes back to or, to what I said before about the first ten pages needing to show kind of a confident authorial hand. Um, I think that that sort of there's a certain level of confidence that that comes with being able to write from a distinctive point of view. Um, So those two things are really intertwined. Um, I feel like there's there's something when the the writing style vanishes and the character is what remains on the page for the reader. I think that's where you know that you have a distinctive and well-developed point of view. Um, when the, the writing doesn't call attention to itself anymore and all that you're noticing is the character.
0: Okay. Now how do I do that? <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, we were discussing this as an agency, and voice is one of those things, like I say, it's, it's so intuitive um, and kind of enigmatic. Um, I think that it's, it's one of those things that's very hard to teach, um, but it is definitely something that is, is possible to learn. And I think probably the way to do that is to read just a ton of books um, and kind of get imbued, you know, get imbued with all sorts of voices um, from all across the industry, um, across genres and across age groups. And I think that's where you start to kind of pick up on what makes a strong voice.
0: Let me follow that up because this is a, another hobby horse of mine is authors who don't read drive me nuts why don't you read why do you want to write if you're not reading who is going to read your books um, how many books should an author be reading um, in a week and a year if you if you could design your perfect author uh, from the ground up that's not going to come and be your client how much reading would they be doing
1: That's an interesting question. So I, I know that at a, a, pre, a conference that I attended recently, there was a 100-picture-book um, challenge that they had done, and the person who successfully completed the challenge could not stop talking about how, um, how much it had informed his, his writing, um, so I think a hundred is a good start. A <laughs> hundred books a year would, would be great. Um, when I was a reviewer at Booklist, or we had a quota and my quota was, let's see, 24 reviews a month. Um, and I, I felt like that, that felt intense, but it also felt like it gave me a very wide angled view of the marketplace in a way that I probably haven't had since. Um, so I, you know, I think that, like somewhere in the 10 to 15 books a month is maybe a manageable, um, goal. But of course it depends on whether you're talking about picture books or novels, novels, probably you can go fewer and still get a lot of benefit. Um, I, I think I probably read, I don't know, trying to think how many books I, how many novels I read this summer. Um, I probably read like five books a month, probably. How about that's you?
0: On top of your clients' work, on top of yeah, that would be, and everything that's coming. That in. would be a
1: combination of personal and professional reading. That's not client work,
0: yeah. And as for me, if I'm allowed to count graphic novels, and I feel that I should be allowed to,
1: absolutely,
0: uh, I'm anywhere from uh, twenty to thirty a month usually. That's impressive. And I, but I also, I have a rule. I don't feel obligated to finish a book past hundred pages. If you haven't got me. I gave you the best every possible opportunity to get me, and if I keep putting your book down to check my phone, it's just not happening. Let's move on. Next book, life's too short.
1: <laughs> yeah, I have that rule too. Although I can't, I can't have that rule for client work, but I definitely have that rule for personal reading.
0: Yeah, I will, I will give a chance because there are books before that have put me off, and I've just said this is so boring and it's terrible. And sometimes I get to the end and I was right, but I'm so glad that I that I read it. Or it's there's a lot of. It's a book that's very popular that lots of people are talking about. I'm like, okay, well, just to find out what the heck they're seeing that I'm not seeing, usually I'm I feel like I'm I'm with the overall whatever whatever's popular, like every Avengers movie, I'm there. I get it. I love it too. I'll be there for Star Wars. But then once in a while there'll be something that just becomes so popular and I it, I'm just a hit scratcher. How did this happen? And then that leads me to, to wondering about my own self. Oh, my gosh, can I write something popular if I don't like popular things?
1: <laughs> I think probably you can.
0: Uh, well, we'll, so, we'll hope so. Um, I had a question for you about reading, and it's gone right out of my head. So let me I, did,
1: you, I did sorry. want to say something, just if you want to think about that some more. I following up my response to the kinds of things i'm looking for there was a spe- very i have a very specific kind of thing that i'm looking for um and it'll be interesting to see if i actually get it, get anything like this after talking about it here but um i you know i'm very interested in, in neuroatypical narrators um i just read the planet earth is blue which is a middle grade novel by i'm going to totally massacre her name it's nicole pentelicos i think Um, And it's about a a little girl with autism, pretty severe autism, set during the Challenger disaster. Anyway, it's a great book. But um, it made me remember that I'm I'm very interested in neuroatypical narrators. And I particularly I have a nephew with Down syndrome. And I I think it would be really interesting if somebody could write a novel um, where a Down syndrome uh, character doesn't have just a subsidiary role. Um, maybe a point of view, or maybe some other stronger role in a book, um, but that's something I think would be uh, that I think isn't out there right now, and it would certainly be of interest to my family, but I think also of broader interest and creative interest to me.
0: I agree. I seek out uh, books with um, uh, characters who have autism or some other type of um, some other type of uh, neurodiversity uh, going on. Um, and the question I always ask about that is if you get somebody who's written that book and they themselves are not on the spectrum, although most of us probably are, uh, especially if you're, uh, <laughs> if you're in publishing, uh, there's a decent chance that, uh, that just a little bit uh, on, on the spectrum. But if you've got somebody uh, that's written that book, would you then employ um, sensitivity readers? Um, how would you ensure that they had gotten that perspective right and that they're telling something that um, is true to that story and not exploitative?
1: Yeah, well, that's, you know, that's an amazing question and a really important question. Um, I think that you know, as agents and, and also people on the other side of the desk in publishing and writers who all have an ethical responsibility to make sure that the representations are not unintentionally inaccurate or hurtful, and, and I think that um, you know, employing authenticity readers is a really, um, you know, is is one way we're going about that. And um, another way is to sort of ask hard questions going into the project to make sure that this is a project that makes sense to write. Um, but, you know, once, once the project is, is written an authenticity reader, I think is starting to become very common and even, um, even imperative, um, in publishing. And sometimes it happens at the developmental stage with the agent and the author employing an authenticity reader for early reads. And then later on, it, it often happens as a second layer, um, once the book goes to a publisher and and the publisher takes care of connecting with the just the right people and sometimes the single novel can have more than one authenticity reader Um, it just sort of depends on the the different um, you know angles of diversity that are present in the book Uh, you know you need to have the right person for each of those
0: and would that be something that you'd want to you'd want to do prior to beginning to submit that to publishers or would you prefer to get a publisher secured and then as part of the editing within the house, have those people come in? At what point in the, the process mm-hmm. should an author be concerned about them?
1: I think at all points in the process, the author should be thinking about it. And I think very often we do have uh, have, it, have it in the lead up to submission, but also after a book is already under contract. Um, sort, of, sort of the pre-submission would have one round of authenticity read and then you know, in the editorial back and forth, that would be a, a process, um, a similar process going on.
0: While we're, uh, while we're in this territory, a question I'm asking every publishing professional um, that I talk to, uh, or at least I'm, I'm trying to be mindful to do, because I, um, I want to see a greater push for diversity in publishing. I think a lot of people want that. Uh, and we're seeing more diversity in publishing now than we would have seen certainly maybe 10 years ago, a lot more than 50 years ago, Uh, but there's still a long way to go. So what are you seeing publishers do? What are you personally doing to help increase diversity in publishing's offerings?
1: Yeah, well, you're so right that it's better than it was, but there is certainly a long way to go. Um, There's, you know, still a great disparity in the number, especially, not especially, but thinking about some statistics I heard for picture books, like the, the number of picture books that have children of color on the cover versus animals or white kids of color. It's it's a very small um, and upsetting percentage. So, and I, and I think that the awareness is now there um, across publishing um, and among writers as well. So I think that's great. Um, I think that one thing that I am Seeing very concretely on the publishing side of things, apart from the fact that they are sort of actively actively talking about wanting books by underrepresented authors, um, which is great. And there's definitely demand there. Um, But but the thing that I was going to say is, is that uh, I think publishers are probably working partly due to the efforts of organizations like We Need Diverse Books. Um, they're supporting internships and other programs to kind of make sure that the, some of the structural racism that goes on in preventing people, um, people of color from getting, being able to have jobs in publishing because it's such an expensive city in which to live, which is, I think, something you alluded to earlier. It's just a ridiculous place to try to um, carry on an early career. Um, So some of these internships that are specifically focused on, you know, developing uh, editors of color and other publishing professionals of color, I think are really having an impact. And I'm, I'm I'm seeing um, just in the past 10 years, the the number of kind of professionals at the editorial assistant level um, from backgrounds that you know aren't obviously white um, is definitely increasing. And I think that's just going to it's not going to happen fast enough probably, but I think it will gradually kind of change the face of what's getting published. Um, I think the use of authenticity readers is becoming um, more common. I think that it has its, its own um, kind of controversies around it that I'm rather not get into right now, but, um, but I think it is a, is a good step forward by and large um, as far as what I'm doing um, to kind of assist. I feel like, you know, as a cisgender decently privileged white lady, Um, you know, I don't want to take up space from the people on the front lines who are really actively um, kind of fighting for this stuff. But, you know, I think that what I'm doing is is sort of making sure that I'm aware of the issues and um, thinking hard about them, having hard conversations with colleagues and with clients um, about these these matters. reading blogs like reading while white, which I think is, is excellent way to just make sure that you're constantly kind of interrogating your reactions to things. Um, all of that is, is something that I've really noticed has changed for me in the, in the last five years, um, and I'm glad of it. And then I, you know, I do things like, I certainly support, we need diverse books with fundraisers, actually one of my um, fundraising critiques is up this week, and I think you can bid through Sunday, um, I don't know when this episode is gonna air, um, but, but I do often donate critiques to, uh, to organizations like that.
0: Uh, we will air today, August 13th. Fabulous. So all the way until Sunday, you said? people. Sunday do-
1: midnight, mm-hmm. right. WNDB. Perfect.
0: Uh, and then another question I'm, I'm obligated to ask every uh, publishing professional like you, uh, is about indie publishing and the indie publishing revolution. Um, so question I'm, that, that I have for everybody. Uh, is as publishing continues to change, and obviously, I don't. I don't think there's anybody that could stand here and say, "Well, this is the future of publishing, and this is exactly what's going to happen." Uh, but as the uh, means to publish and distribute a book become more widespread and more available, how do you how do you see the role of literary agents and editors changing, or do you?
1: I don't really see a big change there. Um, I think that I think that the possibility of self-publishing or indie publishing um, to use the the more common term today is is great and i think it's great for certain people Um, i think in particular uh, there are lots of writers out there who you know waste a lot of time and money on projects that are probably not going to ultimately be very marketable in mainstream publishing And, you know, just to have the possibility of holding a book in their hands, like maybe it's a family story or something like that. Um, I think it's wonderful to be able to point, like when I meet writers like that at a conference, I love being able to point them into the, in the direction of like Amazon KDP or some other platform to be able to, to get that book done. So I think that's great. Um, as, As far as, is it changing the face of publishing? You know, when I, when I first started as an agent 10 years ago, there were, the, the topic of conversation in publishing was, you know, is, is publishing going to go the way of the music industry? Is the ebook going to, you know, completely destroy the face of publishing as we know it? And, you know, that's, that's clearly not happened. And indie publishing is kind of an offshoot of the possibility of having a, a you know, digital-based um, publishing model. Um, And, you know, that I I just think the issue is that the content, um, the role of the content curator is always going to be an important one, and the role of the content creator is always going to be an important one. And, you know, the uh, the ability to kind of matchmake the people who create the content with the people who know how to distribute the content and make sure that it's discoverable, um, that's always going to be an important role. So I don't see publishing dying out uh, just because of that for sure um (laughs)
0: no no not not dying out just kind of uh changing and changing
1: the model yeah yeah i don't see it i mean i i think that that there's always going to be the role of an agent somewhere along the line um and the other thing about self-publishing and this won't come as news to you i'm sure um but the There is a very large gap between the people who are able to make a lot of money in self-publishing and really have a viable career of it and the vast majority of people who, you know, really are unable to kind of do the kind of constant travel and legwork that you would need to do because, you know, you're serving the role of every aspect of a publishing company when you're self-publishing You know, you're you're being the marketing department, you're being the distribution, you know, you're being production, you're being managing editorial, you're being the copy editor, you're being the book designer, you're doing everything. And it's just not a very viable um, job for one person. There are a few high energy people out there who've managed to make it work um, and, you know, kudos to them. But I think for a lot of people, it's it's just not that viable.
0: Fair enough. Uh, never to be competitive, but I, I have to point out that in terms of making uh, a sustainable level of income, I, I might point out that that is also sometimes difficult on the on the traditional side as well. Very true. And uh, something I'd like to just kind of speak into existence, what I'd like to see as I'm... I'm uh, Chatting with editors who are now, uh, who worked with big houses who are now uh, either going completely freelance or who are offering freelance services in addition to uh, mm-hmm. their role with a larger house. Um, certainly seeing that with some book publicists. I'd like to see more people branching out and making those services so that it, there, there is no, um, you don't have to make that distinction between self publishing and indie publishing because I think uh, you know, it's kind of like the, uh, the, the, the lawyer who represents themselves has a fool for a client. I think there's something similar to, if you're going in with self-publishing, it's me, baby, all me, and I'm gonna do everything, is probably a recipe for disaster. So the Mm -hmm. more people that can maybe be made available um, to boost um, indie published authors who reach a certain level, I would love to see that. Not a question there, just speaking my my desire into existence.
1: No, I can see that having a little bit of infrastructure would be very helpful.
0: One more question I'm obligated to ask because we wouldn't be the middle grade ninja podcast if I didn't ask it and then we'll move on and we'll talk more about agenting. But Jennifer Matson, have you ever seen a flying saucer and do you believe it?
1: I have never seen a flying saucer. I don't disbelieve them. I, I think that, um, You know, I, I'm a, as I said, I'm a great lover of fantasy and speculative fiction, and that includes some forms of science fiction. And I think that in order to really love those genres, there has to be some corner of your being that believes that there is probably life out there. And also, I think right now with all the dire reports about climate change and food shortages and Di- disappearing biodiversity and i won't get any further into politics than that but uh with all that i feel like it's very reassuring to me to have that belief
0: that would be um very satisfying and, and and great for us on the other hand as a storyteller i'd be a little bit annoyed that we've got a doing X machina happening right in front of us a god lands on the battlefield and sorts everything out no humanity get your stuff together <laughs> we, can, we can do this. <laughs> well, let's uh, turn our attention to more terrestrial matters. Um, let's talk uh, a little bit more about ancient things. Something specific I wanted to ask you is your client, uh, Kate Hannigan. Hmm. Uh, the, her novel, The Detective's Assistant, won the uh, 2016 Golden Kite Award. Yep. Uh, it was a Booklist editor's choice. It garnered several other bits of official praise. Uh, obviously, Kate Hannigan was probably doing an extreme happy dance. That, that, that had to be a good moment for her. Yeah. Uh, in fact, Ms. Hannigan, if you're listening, please come on the podcast. Tell us about it. We'd love to hear. Uh, but what's that like for you as the agent of the book that's uh, that, that, that's winning all the awards and that everyone loves?
1: Well, I mean, it's delightful. <laughs> <laughs> I think that the, the the especially delightful thing is when you see the good stuff start to snowball. And that's how it feels when good stuff starts to happen for a book. It doesn't like it's like this epiphenomenon that descends itself upon you it just starts to the good news starts to roll in and then it kind of feeds upon itself um and it's it does really feel like it has its own momentum after a while which is just a lot of fun to be along for that ride um but as an agent you know what's so great about it is just seeing good stuff happen to such deserving people and Kate Hannigan is definitely you know at the the top of the deserving heap she's um You know, she's somebody who has worked really hard for years, not just on her own work, but in developing um, support networks for writers in her community. She started a SCBWI branch um, in her neighborhood, which is Hyde Park, Chicago. Um, So she's, you know, constantly doing a lot of hard work and outreach to make sure that she gets great um, speakers for for her community she also does some blogging, interviewing authors. So she's just done a lot of kind of groundwork layering. <laughs> um, and so it's, it's great to see that some of that hard work really pay off. Uh, and you know, it's, it's interesting, Kate, um, she, she talks about having had this kind of eureka moment when she was sort of in that struggling part of her career early on where she had a long time critique group and one of her um, very valued critique partners took her aside after a particularly frustrating critique session. And her critique partner said, you know, Kate, when are you going to start taking yourself seriously as a writer? And somehow that statement really resonated with her. And she somehow realized that she was kind of not taking she was, take, was not taking kind of a professional, she wasn't taking an approach to her writing that would um, give it center stage as a career in her life. Um, it was, you know, it was moving it from like hobby or kind of an airy fairy calling and moving it to center stage so she could really double down on kind of figuring out what stories she wanted to tell and how best to go about telling them. Um, detective's assistance for people who haven't read it is a historical novel with, a kind of structurally interesting, a historical novel, um, with a factual core. It's based around Kate Warren, who was uh, one of the earl- earliest, if not the earliest, the earliest, um, female detective in the United States. She was a Pinkerton detective and she solved many, um, you know, true history sorts of crimes in, in her work with the Pinkerton Agency. Um, and the spin that Kate brought to it uh, is that she invented a niece of Kate Warren, who comes, who loses her family in to various forms of tragedy, um, and comes to live with Kate as her ward uh, in Chicago. And so she kind of has a, you know, front seat view to the mystery solving that Kate Ward does with the Pinkerton agency. And it crests to this um, wonderful climax that happens to involve Abraham Lincoln, which is a true story. Um, So there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of curriculum tie ins with this book because it involves some actual history there's this great feisty woman at the center of it, and then this empowering girl character. And I think in in telling that story, Kate had really figured out what she wanted to do with her writing talent, um, which is to tell stories about um, stories that are driven by girls. And she's since then really been doing that in all of the work that she's done um, so far. In fact, her I'm really glad you asked about Kate, actually, because I'm sure you didn't know this, but her next book just came out last week, August, released August 6th. I brought it actually, show it to you. Um, and this one also has that kind of combination of you know, his, his, history and uh, fueled by girls. Um, here is, can you see it? I actually can't I see can't myself. I can. Myself. It's called Cape. One. And it's got this awesome, shiny Art Deco cover, which is pretty fabulous. Uh, It's the League of Secret Heroes series. And it also is um, kind of an unusual approach uh, for Kate in that it also has hybrid graphic novel components. Uh, So mostly fiction, sort of in a Brian Selznick way, but with these graphic novel interludes. Um, So that's been kind of fun to work on with her. But again, it's, it's a book that really continues to build her brand, so to speak, I kind of hate that brand building term, because I don't like marketing speak. But I think that it's often a really important thing for a writer to kind of figure out so that, you know, no matter what format you're writing, in, you're always sort of intentional about, um, you know, how you're kind of developing your, your, the space you take up in the marketplace. Um, so yeah, that's Kate, she's, uh, she's great. And please read her new book.
0: Well, I did know that her book came out last week just to give people uh, kind of a little bit of a, a, a oh, I don't know, behind the scenes preview. This is a little bit of how I operate as I was going to wait until tomorrow and then send her an email and say, well, hello, Kate. I see you have a new book to promote. I just chatted with your agent. We love you. Why don't you come on the show? <laughs> so <laughs> hopefully uh, in the near future, we'll be chatting with Kate Hannigan. That'll be fantastic. Uh, and if not, eh, we'll catch her uh, next book. Um I wanted to ask you about um, working with authors uh, just in general. Um, um, Obviously, there's some difference, I assume, between when you were working with authors as an an editor for Dutton and working with authors editorially. Now, do you work with authors uh, editorially uh, before you're going out on submission? or do you like them to have the manuscript pretty well ready to go and you let the editor that you, you select um, have the fun of, uh, of getting mm-hmm. involved with the revision on that?
1: Well, I, I'm a very editorially driven agent. Um, I think that probably partly comes from my background in editorial, but I think it also is, a, is something of a tradition within the larger Andrea Brown Literary Agency. I think all of us um, are pretty uh, pretty much believers in the idea that, you know, the more polished and developed you can get a manuscript pre-submission, the greater your chances are of making a really good sale. So I think all of us spend quite a bit of time on development with our with our clients. Um, I, I think that the picture changes somewhat if it's a, like a re-up with an editor. Um, so, you know, if, if the editor has already worked on book one and, you know, there's two more books under contract, or if there's, this is just a follow-up novel that's not under contract. Um, sometimes I won't take quite such a heavy hand because I think it's important once an editorial relationship has been established between a writer and their edit and the editor, I don't really want to kind of fool with that or risk moving the manuscript in a direction that's different from the direction the editor would go with it. Um, but before an author has, a uh, ongoing editorial relationship with somebody or if it's a new kind of format or genre for them so we're maybe looking for a different editorial home for that project um, that's when I'll really double down on the editorial and you know sometimes I think for the detective's assistant I mean I'm sure I drove Kate crazy but I I think I probably you know sometimes write seven page single space editorial letters Um, so it's a pretty rigorous process and you know, it's, I always go into it making sure that clients know that, you know, you're going to be going through this process with me and you better really love this manuscript because you're going to also go through it once you get an editor on board. Um, so, you know, be, pre- be prepared for quite a bit of editorial. Um, you better, yeah, you better be very committed to this project.
0: I wanted to ask about uh, matching up with editors. Do you take into consideration the personality of the editor versus the personality of your author? Uh, Because, you know, these these things happen. We hear about where an editor and an author don't get along for whatever reason, and then that can really blow up a project or create issues down the road. Do you take steps to mitigate that ahead of time? How much can you tell us without revealing your secrets?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think so. I mean, it really is like a matchmaking process. I'm sort of a yenta. um, And I think that part of the reason agents like to meet face to face with editors as much as they can is that you do kind of glean some sense of their personality and get a sense for whether, you know, two people would be a good match. Um, and so, yeah, I definitely take those things into consideration. Um, you know, it's not particularly – it comes into play particularly if you have – you're lucky enough to have a project that goes to auction and there are two or three editors bidding and then – or more – and then you really have to think about those things because at that point you're not trying to decide whether you're going to have a home for the book or not. You're trying to decide, you know, which is the best possible home for that book. So, so that's when I, I often will really think hard about whether the personality is a good match. But, but I think I'm thinking about that at some level, even when I'm formulating a submission list. Yes.
0: And when you're uh, submitting, are you keeping your authors informed every step of the way, or do you, Do you let them decide how informed they want to be? How do you handle that?
1: Yeah, I think that it's pretty important to make sure that editors or that clients are kept informed about what's going on with their own work. So I will. I'm pretty transparent about sharing submission lists with my clients before I go on submission. I think that's really something that all agents should do. Um, You know, because I also often find that my clients, because they often will attend conferences and make connections separate from me, it's important for me to know whether they have further ideas to add to a submission list. So it's really a collaborative process um, at the end of the day. So I'll, I'll share um, submission lists and then I also share responses when they come in. Um, absolutely.
0: Uh, And then um, since I assume everybody that's uh, watching or listening to this is immediately going to send you a query and the numbers tell us that probably they won't all uh, get, get you to represent them. Some of them are going to have to go and look elsewhere. Um, What are the best ways for authors to go about evaluating literary agents? If you had to seek out a literary agent other than yourself, what kind of criteria would you be using? What are the red flags you'd be looking for?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I think that there are, there are lots of resources online to kind of, um, you know, go through a checklist of, of how to distinguish an agent from what we fondly or not so fondly call schmagent. Um, schmagent so being somebody who, you know, just kind of hangs up a shingle, but but maybe doesn't have much experience or even really understand um, how, how to be an ethical agent. Um, certainly, you know, you need to make sure that they're not going to be charging commission higher than the standard commission rate. Um, They certainly, I mean, this is absolutely, should not be charging any kind of reader's fee. Um, You know, and and you want to have a, you want to have a conversation with them before signing on any kind of dotted line to make sure that their kind of larger philosophy and even personality is going to be a good fit with your own. Um, You know, you want to ask questions like, like, what's your communication style? How frequently will we be in touch? Um, how editorial, editorially driven are you as an agent? And, and, you know, if you're looking for someone who can really help you develop your work, then that's something you should be looking for. Um, you know, if, you, if you'd rather postpone that to, you know, to, to getting an editor on board, then, then maybe that's not something you're looking for. So, you know, you, you just need to make sure that you know what your priorities are and, and do the research to get get matched up. And I think some of the, the ways that it's, um, that I've, I've heard from clients um, that they've found uh, to narrow down that master list of dream agents um, is attending conferences. You can often meet up, meet up with agents personally there and, and hear what they're all about. Um, listening to podcasts like this one, um, you know, you can also uh, look at the uh, Association of Authors Representatives and see who are members and who aren't, um, that can be kind of a good litmus too, whether somebody's an agent or a SM agent. Um, I mean, so those are some of the things off the top of my head. Somebody also told me that you can um, search agents' names in quotation marks on Amazon, and the agents that search will bring up any mention of that agent in an acknowledgements page, and that can help you figure out which agents represent what, um, which I thought was kind of a cool tip. Um, but, of course, if you uh, if you are a Publishers Marketplace member and you can get a free membership for the first three months or something like that, you can find out all that information, too, what deals um, particular agents have struck with which editors.
0: Sense to me. And then um, I know we're, we're running close to the end of our time. Uh, I do have a couple of questions. I, I'd kick my own butt if I didn't ask you about. <laughs> uh, one, I wanted to make sure I asked you just about Andrea Brown because I forgot to... To ask Jennifer March Holloway about this. Okay. Um, what uh, What are the advantages of an agency like Andrea Brown versus another agency? Just I just want to give you the platform to sell us on Andrea Brown. Tell all the authors uh, listening and writing their uh, their queries towards you. What does Andrea Brown have going for it that you've been there ten years and no other agency could touch?
1: <laughs> well, I I love talking fondly about my agency. Um, you know, I think that there are lots of different agencies out there and, and you know, many that do wonderful things for their clients, but, but you know, I always love to, to tell you the great qualities of my particular agency. So one of the things is that Andrea Brown, um, with quite a bit of foresight, um, established ABLA, uh, which is the acronym by which we normally refer to it, Um, established it 30 years ago as the only, I think the only uh, kid lit exclusive agency. So it was the, the only children's specialty agency at the time. And this was, you know, years before Harry Potter. So you know, I think that Andrea had quite a bit of foresight to realize that a children's lit specialist agency could really make a go of it, um, and, and it certainly has. So we're, we're also extremely collaborative as an agency, um, and I think that even clients of the most junior agents – reap the benefits of the experience of the most senior agents, um, because we're in constant conversation. We're frequently discussing fine points of contracts to make sure that we're getting the best terms for our clients. Um, We're constantly kind of mooting, uh, you know, even to the level of the tone of an email that one of us might be sending to an editor about a sensitive topic you know we're we're sharing that and making sure that it's going to come across right so so we have just a very collaborative atmosphere and i think that um i think that just sort of tells you something about the the people involved you know we're i i feel like we're we're just very nice people that want to work with other very nice people and i think that we're successful with that a lot of the time Um, the other thing that's kind of more uh of fiscal importance to clients is that because we are a bigger agency and, you know, we have, um, we have the clout of a bigger agency that also represents some New York times, bestselling writers, um, and some award-winning writers like Meg Medina, who we mentioned earlier, I think because we have like both developing career authors and those really heavy hitters, we're able to have quite a bit of negotiating clout, um, And I think that the, you know, people who are still, we love having authors who are still developing in their careers. And I think they benefit from the fact that we've we've got some of that negotiating power.
0: You mentioned Meg Medina again, and we we can't ever talk enough about uh, Meg Medina. I should just point out there on the off chance that uh, Meg, if you're listening, there is a cameo appearance from a character in Banneker Bones and the Alligator People named Mercy just for you. That, that's Aww. how excited I was about Mercy Suarez changes gears.
1: I love little Easter eggs like that. That's cool.
0: And then, uh, gosh, you, you'd asked me before we got started, gosh, will we be able to fill up uh, the whole time? Absolutely, <laughs> and more. It's, it's not a concern. Not uh, a concern. A question You're I right. wanted to ask you specifically, because it was just something so, so unique and interesting uh, that I saw when I was talking to you online here. Um, was that uh, you had read something by Anthony Trollope? Am I saying is it was a Trollope or Trollope?
1: Oh, I'm so happy you're asking me about Anthony Trollope.
0: It, uh, set you on a mission, you said, to read his oeuvre. So what a what a very personal, specific question to you. What was it about his writing that sent you on this mission that you had to read everything he'd written?
1: Well, I mean, Anthony Trollope so late 19th uh, mid to late 19th century author um and i think that he's often compared to dickens because his output was about like just equally prolific and also equally widely read in his time he was not one of these authors that like came to fame after his death like he was really popular in his time um, and I think that what I love so much and, and the particular books that I read by Anthony Trollope, which I'll recommend to your esteemed listeners, um, is the Barsetshire um, cycle, which is a series of six books. And they're all set in this um, kind of imagined provincial uh, British community where the cathedral is the center of life. And it just kind of focuses, each book kind of focuses in a different way on a different family um, and all the machinations that they get involved with um, over the course of maybe two or three generations. So it's one of these, I don't watch a ton of television um, because I just don't have time with my kids and work and and whatnot. But I feel like reading the Trollope series, because it's kind of a deep dive into this web-like community. It's kind of my personal experience of binge-watching a Netflix series, <laughs> and I, I think that other people would find that, too. Um, the other thing I'll say about Trollope is that he's incredible with character. If you're somebody who struggles with that, I think that his his ability to create round characters um, is bar none, and... People often say that Dickens is p- great with plot. And I think that Trollope is kind of the, on the other side of the coin. He's, I mean, his plots are great too, but I think that he's better with character than, than Dickens. And I'm just kind of a 19th century British person. Like I like that stuff. So this particularly appealed to me, but the other thing I'll say, and I know we're really running out of time, but oh, I'm such fine. a Trollope. Fan.
0: we got time for Trollope.
1: <laughs> so, so I think that writers can kind of um, take heart from Trollope because He's one of these people that, or maybe not take heart, certainly take heart, but also take inspiration. He was one of these people that, you know, had like a career as a post office worker. Like he was not a career writer. He wrote kind of in his spare time. Um, and he he ha- also had a very um, rigorous schedule that he kept to, to be able to keep up with his uh, word count output, which is like you know, 250 words every 15 minutes or something crazy like that. Um, and in fact, he had a special desk made so that he could write on his way back and forth to work on the train to, to the post office. Um, and in the end, like, he never quit his post office job. He just kept on going with that and still wrote something like 45 books over the course of his life. So I think that every writer can kind of glean some, um, some inspiration from that level of, of rigor to one's craft.
0: Obviously, the uh, members of esteemed audience who've listened to this have now learned that they need to be reading a minimum of at least 20 to 30 books a month. So you can knock out uh, (laughs) the works of Anthony Charlton in a a couple of months here and and still have plenty of time for (laughs) everybody else. Um, Jennifer, I could talk to you uh, forever. I know that there's so much more information you have to share that I just haven't asked the right questions to get up. Um, So in an attempt to last minute catch any inspiration that we might have missed, Is there anything we haven't talked about? Is there anything that you wish that any uh, writers uh, or members of esteemed audience who are listening, if there was one piece of advice you could give them, if there was something you'd like them to put into practice, what what would that be?
1: Hmm. Well, I think that I would just go back to what I mentioned about Kate Hannigan's kind of eureka moment. I think that the, the realization that you need to take yourself seriously as a writer is I think something that can apply to a, a lot of writers at lots of different stages in their career, um, to, to really like make it center stage in their lives and, you know, just kind of drill down into it as, uh, as assiduously as you can. And I think that's the way, um, that you can eventually have success. I mean, the, the clients of mine that I see, having success and it's, it's the building kind of success that is so much more common and lasting than the instantaneous success. Um, those clients whose careers have built successfully over time are the ones who are really just, um, you know, digging away at it every day and not, and not getting frustrated. So I think uh, it's a combination of kind of taking yourself seriously, approaching it professionally and having the resilience and grit to, to not, um, to not give up after, after a few failures or even more than a few failures. Um, cause certainly, you know, even, even clients of an agency experience failure pretty regularly. Um, and I know because I have to deliver that news, um, you know, somewhat frequently. So, you know, it's, it's something that you have to kind of have a, a pretty thick skin to, to endure, but, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's worth enduring because the success really is out there.
0: Is there any way to be an author and not get rejected? No, <laughs> that would be worth this weight in gold. <laughs> you can tell me how to do that. Nice. Uh, Jennifer, thank you so much again for this amazing conversation. I so appreciate you being here. Where can uh, esteemed audience find you online? How can they reach out to you and get in touch with you?
1: Oh, sure. Well, you can, um, always find me at the Andrea Brown lit website, um, andreabrownlit.com, uh, or you can email me if you, if you're trying to query me, um, it's jmad at andreabrownlit.com. Um, I guess those are the two main pieces of information that you need to know.
0: I, of course, am always available at middlegradeninja.com. If you head there now, you can read, read as well as listen to interviews with hundreds of uh, publishing professionals, authors, anybody that you'd want to be aware of. Go check that out. You can read some of my book reviews without teeth, those are always fun. Uh, Make sure you download your free copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. Or if you love the Middle Grade Podcast but don't like Middle Grade books, that's fine. Get the Book of David, Chapter 1. Download that for free as well. Uh, Make sure you find your way back here either uh, late Thursday or Friday when I'm going to be chatting with Editor Molly Cusick and come back next week to talk with author Alan Woodrow. Um, And, Jennifer, I always ask our guests to sign us off. Uh, Our sign-off phrase is, hi-yah, and what have you. Would you sign us off?
1: Hi, yeah, and what have you.